HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. You're listening to Let's Get Real, a cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, your host, Erica Wides. And I'm back. I took a little two-week hiatus, did a little Passovering and Eastering, and now we're back. And this is our 126th episode. Last time we did a live show, that was our 125th anniversary show took us a little while to recuperate from the big party down here in the fallout shelter and we had to clean up do some repairs you know stuff like that got a little out of hand but we're back and since we're back and we're starting our next 125 shows um you know who we haven't discussed in a while you know who we haven't talked about in a long time come on just take a guess who do i live to talk about the most other than myself, of course. Yeah, Laura, of course, as in, you know who, Laura Ingalls Wilder, my favorite imaginary best friend in the whole world. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know she was a real person, not just the subject of books and TV shows. I know she was a real person, but Laura also was my imaginary friend in my 1970s, somewhat depressed, grim childhood. Um which I've talked about before. And you know how I love me some Little House on the Prairie books, right? I'm even reading one of them right now. Um, and I love the whole kind of Laura history and the mystique and all that, right? I love it so much that, in fact, I was going, going to submit a proposal to present an academic paper uh-huh, on my relationship with her at something called Laura Palooza, which is held every summer. Laura Palooza is an all Little House on the Prairie academic 
and cultural conference and event in where else but DeSmet, South Dakota, where Laura and her family eventually settled and where she met her husband, Almanzo. So I was going to do that. I was going to write up this whole proposal. I had a whole idea for it. But you know what happened? It was winter and I got distracted by Netflix. And I just like never got around to it. There was just, you know, there was a lot to watch. Downton Abbey came back and there was a call the midwife. So I never got around to it. So, oh, well, perhaps next year, perhaps. Or maybe I'll just go to the conference as an attendee. You know, I'll put on my calico bonnet and I'll go join in the fun, maybe. I don't know. Hmm. Anybody want to go with me? But yeah, so Laura, she's, she's such an important part of the Let's Get Real story, really. She was one of the, the catalysts, one of the sparks that ignite, no, ignited ignite the Let's Get Real story. Because so many times before the show, when I would be faced with a new foodiness nightmare or an unfathomable modern age industrialized food horror, I would think to myself, what would Laura make of this? Not what would Jesus do? Because frankly, you know, Jesus was mythological, but Laura was real. What would Laura make of this? Would she even recognize what we call food today as food? What would she think of all of this? I mean, sure, she would recognize some of our food as food, some stuff, you know, she would recognize meat, dead animals, vegetables, butter. They eat a lot of butter. But it probably wouldn't taste very good to her. Our food today wouldn't taste like anything to her because in her day, food had much, much more flavor. It was much more flavorful. But we industrially pounded out the flavor from our food in favor of uniformity and controlled ripeness and factory farming. So all of those things usurped flavor. Would Laura recognize pink squeezable yogurt in a tube as food or frozen dinosaur shaped nuggets formed out of chicken slurry paste as food? Probably not. Mm, Most definitely not. Not food. In her day or in ours, that shit, it's not food. Whether she recognized it or not, even now, not food. And in fact, there's some thought recently that a part of what's causing our obesity epidemic is that our food is so flavorless. Our food is so flavorless, we're actually becoming malnourished because we're driven by an innate sense of nutrition to eat certain things. And those things don't really exist anymore in the modern American diet. And our brain's inability to acknowledge or recognize or determine any sort of feeling of doneness or satiety, satiety, I never knew how to say that, satiatedness um, is impacting us that way. Yeah. In countries that have much more flavorful, stronger, more intensely flavorful food of their traditional cuisines, where their traditional cuisines are still somewhat more intact, people eat less. Mm -hmm. Food tastes better, you eat less. And I don't mean better like because you put barbecue sauce all over it. I mean better like because it has natural, naturally occurring good flavors. Our standard American diet, which, you know, the initials for that are SAD, SAD, is so bland that we have to cover, smother everything with barbecue sauce and ketchup and processed cheese just to sort of get like a buzz off of it, just to sort of get any sort of sense of feeling of flavor. And all of those things are engineered by food companies to hit all those right notes of sweetness and salt 
nastiness and acidity that we as humans crave. But those are the things that we would otherwise find in the food itself if the food had been kind of left alone and hadn't been industrialized and processed to death. You see what's going on here, right? So then we have to dump all this other stuff on top of it, which adds in hundreds and hundreds of extra calories of sugar and fat and makes us obese. Oh, great. Now, throughout the course of the eight or so Little House on the Prairie books, there's like eight to ten, depending on who you ask. People, Some they don't count. Some people say they don't count. We, the readers, are taken along with the Ingalls family on their peripatetic journey. Peripatetic. Peregrine-esque journey. As they make their way west from Wisconsin's big woods, through Kansas's Indian Territory, to Minnesota, into Nebraska, and then finally to Smet, South Dakota. They were peripatetic because actually Pa Ingalls, it turns out, was like a little bit of like a nut job and he never wanted to stay in one place at one time. He had what we would call spilkus. And they endure all the standard hardships of late 19th century American life, like blizzards and scorching heat and drought and record-setting cold and long, long freezing winters and plagues of locusts and near-lethal fevers and attacks by Indians. You know, the standard stuff. We suffer and rejoice along with them. We freeze and we sweat. We break sod and we strain the milk with them. We work our skinny pre-20th century asses off just trying to survive with them. Literally. What we don't do on our journey with Laura and her family is sit around moping and philosophically pondering our greater purpose with them. Because at least as Laura tells it, there wasn't any time ever for that kind of stuff. There were always cows to milk and straw to twist into fuel sticks for the fire because they were living on the prairie and there was no wood and laundry water to boil and beans to soak and biscuit dough to make and dirt floors to sweep and fields to plow but never really much time to sit around thinking hmm maybe I shouldn't have spent four years at art school and then changed my career at 25 and now find myself almost 50 and not sure what I really want to do with my life but maybe I'll just watch one more episode of Bob's Burgers and eat another bowl of Greek yogurt and not really think about it today and I'll dust off my book proposal tomorrow instead. No, not much of that happened in the little house on the prairie. You think you're falling asleep earlier and earlier each year? Is that happening to you? It happens to me. Try trying to watch a show like Veep by Candlelight. You'll never make it through season one. Now, if you're working your little pioneer tushy off to survive, then that's what's on your mind. Survival. Not, oh crap, did I remember to eat a fermented food today and drink 16 glasses of water? And oh, is it an upper body or a lower body day today at the gym? Or maybe it's a spin class day. I can't remember. And what flavor protein powder should I add to my smoothie this week? And Oh, what time was that waxing appointment? And did I remember to post those pictures of the kids at stand-up paddleboarding school on Instagram? And what should we eat for dinner tonight? The frozen chicken or the frozen salmon? But the salmon isn't wild, and I think we're not supposed to eat farm salmon anymore. Maybe we should go out for sushi instead or order in vegan Thai. Oh, wait a second. Aren't we paleo vegans now? Too many choices. That's our 21st century form of suffering. Not plagues of locusts or severe drought or sub-zero weather. Oh, wait, yes. We have those too. Oops. But we also have so much other stuff to worry about and focus on. But, you know, as they say, it was a simpler time. Eat or be eaten. That was about it. 
We're going to take a short break. And when we'll be back, more about my best friend, Laura. You're listening to Intrigue by Obey City. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Wise. So this brings me to my point. You know, it takes a while, but it brings me to my point, which is the one fundamental primal theme of the Little House on the Prairie books, really the only thing that matters in their lives is food. I mean, what else was more important to them than making sure that they had enough food to survive on, right? What else mattered? Their creative energy, their inner peace, their abs, their SEO ratings, how many followers they had on Instagram? Um, no. Nope. Food was it, of course. I mean, up until the Industrial Revolution got well underway, if you weren't the ruling class, the ones controlling the means of production... Getting enough food was a constant struggle and pretty much your only struggle. You had to grow it, raise it, catch it, hunt it all by yourself. As my niece Evelyn used to say, you had to do it by self. And it was tough and scary and super unpredictable. Because one bad winter or dry summer or errant swarm of grasshoppers and you were dead. So you planned and you stored and you rationed and you carefully put food away for the lean seasons. You couldn't just go to Costco. And you hoped that it would last till the summer crops came in or the fish ran again or the animals came out of hiding, hiding or hibernation or the trees filled up with fruit. Whatever it took, any combination of the above, your choice. So in every book in the series, all of them, which I've read all of them way too many times each, it always comes back to the food. It's what got me hooked when I read that first one when I was like eight years old. And it's what still gets me today. The food, the relentless freezing cold winters with dinners every day of boiled potatoes and salt pork every day. Not what's for dinner, but what's not for dinner? Well, nothing other than boiled potatoes and salt pork because it's winter and that's what we eat. So don't ask. The months on end of breakfast of simply cornmeal porridge. And then those brief, brief, glorious summers 
filled with fleeting, fleeting lettuces and radishes and peas. The cyclical, reliable, and yet still unpredictable nature of producing your own food. And then underneath it all, underneath it all, underscoring or punctuating the monotony of it, there was one staple, and that was the beans. Always the beans. If there was a sack of dried beans in the pantry, everything would be okay. Beans were like the insurance policy. Yeah, beans were like the MetLife of the pioneer era. Because if you had the beans, you'd be okay. No salted meat left, no wheat. The cow's gone dry, the potatoes rotted, nothing left. It's okay. We still have 20 pounds of beans to get us through the winter. We're going to make it. Whether they grew them on the farmstead or bought them at the mercantile, they needed the beans and they ate the beans regularly. The ma made baked beans. Ma's baked beans cooked all day in the wood-burning cook stove with a precious little piece of salt pork and a little drizzle of some molasses. Or just boiled in water if things got really tight toward the end of the winter. If you have beans, you survive. Now, remember, just because they lived within reach of a store most of the time, not all the time, sometimes they lived really far out of, from towns, but often they lived near a town with a store. But in the winter, if things got really, really terrible, the store had nothing left in it either because where was the store supposed to get their stuff from, right? When they lived on the prairie, the railroad came through. That's why the town was there. But if the railroad couldn't get through because of the snow, which is what happened in the long winter, the town went starving basically that was the year that they had to eat their seed wheat or their wheat seed because they would have starved to death without it the whole town would have starved they had to eat their seed yeah kind of crazy but back to the beans right so we're all familiar with goya beans right goya in the can the blue can if you're over 40 well anybody knows goya beans right but if you're over 40 maybe you remember the goya bean lady Remember the Goya bean lady from the ads? Got a can of Goya beans in the house? That's how she used to say it. Got a can of Goya beans in the house? She was this very kind of, well, she seemed very tall to me on TV. Tall, dark hair, sort of big hair, like Loretta Lynn kind of hair. Kind of Latina looking lady who I always swore was also an ensemble player on the electric company. But I did an extensive Google search this morning and I could turn up no connection between her and the electric company. But does any of that ring a bell? To you, did anyone else think that the Goya bean lady was also on the electric company? Let me know. Now, she did ads for Goya beans for years. Got a can of Goya beans in the house? Turns out her name was, is, she's still alive, Zora Lampert. She wasn't Latina at all, just a dark Jew like me. What are you, Italian, Greek? I get that a lot. What are you, Italian, Greek? No, just a dark Jew from a misplaced tribe who wound up in Eastern Europe, but probably were from Spain. Zora Lampert, the Jewish face of Goya beans. And Zora Lampert is married to Jonathan Schwartz, FYI, who, if you're a New Yorker, might know of. He is a longtime radio host here in New York City. He plays all this old-time big band and American songbook kind of stuff, a lot of Sinatra, things like that. My mom used to listen to Jonathan Schwartz all the time. It's really funny who winds up with whom here in the center of the cultural universe, the Goya Bean Lady, and the sound of WNEW AM in New York radio. Remember that? WNEW 
1130 in New York. Because my mom and I used to fight in the car about whether we listened to that or we listened to Howard Stern when he was on K-Rock. I usually won. Anyway, the beans. The beans are the point of today's show. The beans. Zora Lampert's tagline for the bean campaign, other than, got a can of Goya beans in the house, was also, wait for it, genius in advertising, Goya. Oh, boya. Now, can't you just picture the ad agency creative team sitting around in the creative lounge for days on end, smoking, it was the 70s, and drinking tab, and trying really hard to come up with something great about beans? Just like in Mad Men, which is where I get all my ad agency references from, by the way. In Mad Men, when they get the Heinz account for beans and sauces, but most definitely not the account for ketchup and vinegar, as that's a much more prestigious account, and Heinz is kind of fucking with them. And Peggy comes up with her awful bean ballet animation campaign, which bombs. Anyway, you can just about hear the client after they listen to some brilliant pitch about beans, then say, well, we were thinking of something more along the lines of Goya. Oh, Boya. And you can see the agency creative team stabbing themselves in the eye with their colored pencils. Now, it's hard to make beans exciting. Peggy and her team, they knew that. You can't spin a bean into something it's not. It's a bean a humble small protein and fiber and mineral packed perfect nugget of real food if whatever creator out there who created the universe and the world nature force whatever you want to believe in wanted to create the perfect food for humans it's the bean it's not the dinosaur shaped chicken nugget i'm sorry to say it's the bean and that perfect nugget of real food that provides Sustenance for billions of people around the world. It doesn't even need refrigeration. I mean, think about that. How perfect is it? All you need is some water and some fire. No refrigeration. How many cultures around the globe rely on some sort of bean or other legume as their stable food? A lot, as they should. You can live forever on a diet of beans and rice or lentils and rice or dal and rice or beans and corn tortillas or split peas or mung beans or pigeon peas or even peanuts as they're used in parts of Africa as a stew and soup stable. More like a bean, less like a bar snack. Legumes are the shit. F the paleos who claim we're not supposed to eat them. Beans rule. I've been eating my standard black bean soup and lentil and eggplant stew diet all winter, and I'm fairly happy. I mean, food-wise, I'm fairly happy. I won't get into the other factors that affect happiness in our lives, since I'm not fully occupied 24-7 trying to grow my food, and I have too much time to think about stuff between watching episodes of Louie. But food-wise, I couldn't be happier. We have to take another short break. We will be right back with more beans. You're listening to Now by Spiral Jetty Club.
Hi, this is Chad Pagano, former Army sniper, host of the Wild Game Domain, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network.org. Welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, eating food on Heritage Radio Network, where I have esteemed colleagues like Chad Pagano, former Army sniper. Oh, and my former colleague of 15 years, where I used to teach. Hi, Chad. So in the midst of all this leguminous joy, my happiness about food, this leguminous, I love that word, this happy transitional season of the hot lentil soup to the cold black bean salad, what comes along? What, what, what did the foodiness gods bring us this month? What has come down the pipeline, down the rabbit hole, and landed with a big, wet, sweet, slimy thud? Mm thud on the floor of the foodiness fallout shelter the big bs machine of foodiness advertising with an example of spin that will make your head spin for lack of a better word there's a new tv ad campaign for bushes baked beans and i have to say it's funny and cute now i if you haven't noticed i have a severe love hate thing with advertising you know sometimes i think i probably should have gone into advertising or branding because I kind of really get it and kind of really love it, but also kind of really hate it. And my other pretend BFF is Peggy Olson, after all, from Admin, from the animated Dancing Bean Ballet debacle. Now, Peggy and Laura and I often hang out in my head sometimes, and we watch Freaks and Geeks together on Netflix, which is very complicated because it's very hard to explain to both of them in 2015 about a show from 1991 that's actually about life in 1980, starring every single actor who made it big in the 2000s. I actually like to call Freaks and Geeks the Muppet Babies of the early 2000s film world. Because Peggy just keeps saying to me over and over again, but that smart high school freshman girl who's hanging out with those bad kids, she's Don's neighbor from Park Avenue. I don't get it. I'm so confused. Now, how do you explain to someone who's living in an era where there's only five TV channels? Anything, really. I don't know. Laura got it more than Peggy. But anyway, Bush's Baked Beans. I don't know how I got on that tangent. Bush's Baked Beans, a delicious product that we've all enjoyed, a classic American product. The baked bean goes way, way, way back to the New England settlers, you know, way back to colonial times, way back to the colonies. Boston Baked Beans with molasses, because you know why they had so much molasses? It was a byproduct of rum making and sugar production, which was part of what? The Triangle Trade, which is all about what? Oh, slavery. Mm, whoops. That's why we ate so much molasses in the New World, you know? Mm-hmm. That's kind of a vague explanation, but it's true. So Bush's Baked Beans, a classic American product that we've all enjoyed at many a picnic and barbecue in our lives. I mean, who doesn't love baked beans, right? They're now... Bush's is now spinning their little brown sugar-glazed protein nuggets spinning the baked bean, to try to sell them to moms with the new idea that baked beans are a vegetable. A vegetable. Yeah. They are officially now calling the baked bean a vegetable. Designated as a vegetable. Now, now, yeah, I suppose beans, yes, they're vegetable. They're vegetal products. I mean, they're not meat. They're not dairy. They're, you know, not... They're vegetables. They grow on plants, on vines, in pods like peas or green beans. 
but dried beans are not really a vegetable. The pod they grow in is a vegetable. The bean itself is something else. It's, you know, it's full of protein and fiber and minerals and stuff. They're great for you. They're not really vegetables. And if you drown them in a sauce of molasses and brown sugar and artificial smoke flavor, they're more like some kind of hipster cocktail in Bushwick than a vegetable. Now, look, there's nothing wrong with baked beans. I mean, I like them a lot, and I've even made them from scratch, too. Mm -hmm, You can do that. And they're a great side dish with a burger. But let's call a bean-shaped spade a spade. They ain't vegetables, all right? Now, in this cute ad, we see a research lab setting with two young white-coated technicians, male and female, and a little round table with little cute kids at it. And researcher number one says, okay, everyone, tell us your favorite vegetable. And silence. Nobody's talking because they're kids who apparently hate vegetables. I didn't. I know kids who love vegetables, but America's children, apparently it's a law. You have to hate vegetables. Total silence. So then they serve up those adorable Moppets, little bowls of Bush's baked beans and announced, and the kids start slurping them down because they're all sweet and salty and smoky and delicious. And then they announce that they're actually eating vegetables. What? Because Bush's baked beans are a vegetable, a vegetable. So moms can feel okay now about skipping the spinach, eschewing the kale, skirting the salad. Just open a can of bushes instead. Forget the nightly struggle to make the kids eat a green leaf or a bean or two. Well, a green bean or two. Now you don't have to because now we've coated our vegetables in sugar too. Everything is now sweet. Got a can of baked beans in the house? Well, I certainly hope not because a single serving of baked beans, the original flavor baked beans, the ones with molasses and brown sugar and tomato paste, has 12 grams of sugar. And a single serving is a half cup. Now, a half cup is four ounces. So think of like a tennis ball. Now cut it in half. Fill that half with baked beans. There you go. 12 grams of sugar. In comparison, a half a can of Coke has 17 grams of sugar. A half Snickers has about 16 grams of sugar. And who only eats half a cup of baked beans anyway? Not me. They're so good. You have to eat more than that. And that's just the original flavor. They have a new brown sugar hickory flavor. That one has 16 grams per half cup. 16, same as half a Snickers. Hey mom, what's for dessert? Oh, an insulin injection? Okay, everybody roll up your sleeves. Now, in Laura's day, cooking your beans with molasses and brown sugar was fine, as that was probably all the sugar you ate for the week or the month or probably even the year. And since you were doing hard physical labor for, oh, 12 to 16 hours a day, it was okay. But today, really? A vegetable? How the FCC, etc., are allowing bushes to call this product a vegetable is so beyond me. This is where I need a Smarty Pants research assistant who is actually willing to do the work to find out the rules and regulations in food advertising for me. Applications are now being accepted to be my research assistant. I'll wait while you submit them. Okay. So canned beans are now a vegetable. And Marco Rubio is running for president. And Tori Spelling fell yesterday onto the hibachi grill at Benihana and needs a skin graft. And that's what makes front page news. Mm-hmm. Oh, and speaking of the 80s, 
which we were before. This all just smacks to me of voodoo and insider corporate shenanigans and dealings, like when Reagan got the USDA to declare ketchup a vegetable for school lunches, or not long ago, a year or two ago, when pizza was declared an acceptable substitute for vegetables, or recently when the American Dietetics Association teamed up with Kraft to put their seal of approval on processed cheese product slices. American cheese slices approved by the ADA, American Dietitians. The spin machine, the Orwellian doublespeak, the foodiness, rabbit, holiness of it all, it's almost too much for me to bear. I mean, how can I explain all of this to Laura? It's too much. She's a smart girl. She became a teacher at 15 years old. But I'm not sure that even I can make this one make sense to her. I may have to just give up. So if you don't want to eat shit, and you certainly don't want to eat baked bean foodiness shit, you probably should keep on listening to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food here on Heritage Radio Network with me, your host. And you should follow me on Twitter at Let's Get Real Show. And you should find us on Facebook. And what else? You should check out my website, letsgetrealshow.com. And keep listening to Heritage Radio Network. And remember, we are listener-supported. And we're, what are we doing? Oh, a Kickstarter to build a new website. So all of those and above. Thanks to Jack Inslee, who's usually here engineering. Today it's G. Thanks, G, in the booth. Thanks to Ben Kaplan for writing my awesome theme song. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.